In partnership with 2SER, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of For the State, a weekly program about the media featuring Australia's leading journalists. Broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. Hello and welcome to another episode of For the State here on 2SER. Hope you're managing to keep nice and dry wherever you are this evening. My name's Jack Fisher. Tonight, bringing you a special episode of Fourth Estate. I'm going to be playing you a very important speech by one of the nation's best investigative journalists, and it's all about metadata. You still with me? Good. Ross Coulthart from Channel 9 gave this address last month at the annual Press Freedom Dinner. That's put on by the Journalists' Union, the MEAA, the Walkley Foundation and the International Federation of Journalists. Ross Coulthart is one of Australia's best-known investigative journalists. He's worked at A Current Affair, Four Corners and The Nine Network Sunday. And he's won five Walkley Awards, including the Gold Walkley. But as you'll hear from him, there's a very real threat to how Ross and his colleagues do their job, and it's in the form of the Attorney-General's Mandatory Data Retention Scheme, which will require that all of our internet and phone records be stored for two years. Now, those new laws do include some protections for journalists, but as we've discussed on the show before, the supposed protections just aren't enough, and it's going to have a chilling effect on whistleblowers being able to leak to journalists in Australia. Here's Ross Coulthart. I must confess I racked my brains about ways of making metadata into a compelling issue, so I I hope I can hold you tonight. There are probably more than a few journalists, and I used to be one of them, who scoff at the idea that they have to do any more than they're currently doing to protect their sources. I think for a lot of us, metadata sounds a bit of a bore. I think we all reassure ourselves that our police and intelligence services have got a hell of a lot more important things to do than to worry about who's leaking to Ross Coulthart or to any other journalist. But I'm here to disabuse you of that notion from personal experience. For at least 36 years since 1979, police, government departments and a plethora of other bodies have been allowed to request, without a judicial warrant, the telecommunications records of journalists to chase the sources of leaked government information that has appeared in their stories. Those records, known as metadata, include the phone bills, the phone numbers called, the numbers that are calling the journalist. It includes the name and address of every subscriber behind those numbers, even location data, where the phone is at the time. It includes email addresses and whoever we've been exchanging texts or messages with. It's what it doesn't include is the content of any of those communications, but it's the digital trail between you and any person you're communicating with. And it's an incredibly powerful weapon to track down whistleblowers, people who are doing the right thing in the public interest to reveal things that should be being revealed. That's what we rely on as journalists. And sadly, In this era of national security sensitivity, there's no recognition from many bureaucrats or politicians of any public interest in seeing some of these embarrassing secrets exposed. Journalists, they think, are a nuisance and their sources must be stomped on. So when the Australian, laudably, I think, exposed massive criminality in our airport security in 2005 with a leaked customs report, it was the metadata that sank the newspaper's alleged source. 
he was allegedly a customs officer called Alan Kessing. And, and I know a bit about this story because I'd written a couple of books about bikies and organised crime. And it shocked me from talking to bikie sources that there were outlaw motorcycle gang members with serious criminal records who'd been involved in drug dealing who were allowed to hold airport security identification cards, ASIC cards. That meant they could literally walk through to the airside secure area in airports and bring things through. Alan Kessing was quite rightly concerned that this was an open invitation for gun and drug smuggling. And boy, was he right. His attempts, though, to get changes inside customs were rebuffed. So the phone records were used at his trial to suggest he'd called News Limited from a phone box very near his house. Now just notice there, his case probably didn't even involve accessing the journalist's phone records. As I'm told is more commonly the case, the feds targeted the suspected source, and in doing so, they linked him to the journalists he was allegedly speaking to. There wasn't any real national security secret that needed to be protected by attacking this whistleblower, this alleged whistleblower. It was just that it was embarrassing to the government that this report that highlighted security problems at our airports had been leaked. What it was all about was about a very public smackdown and a warning to any bureaucrat who has the courage to blow the whistle by leaking to a journalist. Why did we ever allow such oppressive laws to be implemented that gag important stories, important revelations in the public interest? I don't understand this. I don't know why these laws are allowed. The Australians' stories based on that leaked customs report helped force an inquiry that brought about a $220 million upgrade in airport security, something that would have been done in the first place if they'd listened to Mr Kessing. He copped a criminal conviction and a nine-month suspended jail sentence, which I just think is outrageous. But this is going on all the time. Just how frequently this power to access your and my metadata is going on is extraordinary. In 2012, there were no less than 40 government agencies that had made nearly 300,000 individual requests for metadata in that one year. Now, we have to hope that most of those requests were done for law enforcement, legitimate law enforcement or security purposes. But we don't know how many of those hundreds of thousands of requests were in fact being used to track leaks to journalists because, surprise, surprise, the government has said to FOI requests, it's a secret. It's clearly a heck of a lot more though than the handful that have been disingenuously suggested. Now this metadata issue has been getting traction because of this year's changes to the law which now require such metadata to be kept for two years by telecommunications and internet providers. And even though we're told the new laws tighten just who can now access this sensitive data, the estimate is that about 2,500 bureaucrats will still be able to sign off on accessing metadata without a court warrant. If they want to search a professional journalist's metadata in search of a source, then they'll now have to get a, a journalist information warrant from a judge or a magistrate. But even if they do go to get a, a warrant from a judge, it's not like the journalist is actually allowed to know about it, to mount an argument against it. Incredibly, the whole process is going to be kept secret. 
A government lawyer will supposedly argue the public interest in protecting the source on a, on a journalist's behalf. But as I'll explain, there's an even bigger problem with these new laws. There's a huge hole in them. They don't stop incidental exposure of a journalist's metadata if the authorities target the source and not me, the journalist. They can ask for the source's records as much as they like, and, and the circumstances under which they can ask for that are absolutely extraordinary. Sixteen years ago, I was given an alarming insight into just how often journalists are actually spied on using these laws. It changed forever how I operate as a journalist. Back then in 1999, I was doing an investigation for the um, Sunday program into the Australian tax office. And there was huge concern from inside the tax office, as there is now, that while your average taxpayer is squeezed for every dollar of tax that they owe, the big end of town, all too often, the large business and industry section, as the tax office call it, LBI, was often allowed to settle huge tax bills for considerably less than what the taxman said was due. A lot of tax office staff were very concerned about this. They even suggested to me that there was corruption and I was being leaked a lot of confidential documents. The turning point for me, my metadata paranoia privacy moment, was when a very senior tax office manager insisted on meeting me in a Canberra hotel room. And I thought he was being absurdly paranoid because he wouldn't let me call him. He wouldn't phone me. His first contact, and indeed his only contact, apart from a face-to-face -face contact, was by mail. Ordinary post. Still one of the safest, most secure ways of getting in touch with a journalist. A lot of you might have seen or heard of the Federal Police Commissioner's claims to the Parliament where he played down the number of times that the AFP seeks a journalist's metadata. I think Paul said earlier that he told a parliamentary committee that in the last 18 months they'd only received 13 referrals for leaks inquiries, and that in the overwhelming majority of cases they didn't even ask for the journalist's metadata. So look, let's just all pack up and go home. It's a storm in a teacup. It's all fine. Well, let me tell you, it isn't. Because what the Federal Police Commissioner didn't tell you was the whole story. The one I was told by that public servant 16 years ago. Firstly, that public servant told me that most requests for metadata aren't made by the Federal Police at all. Leaks investigations are generally done by the internal security unit of each government department. And my source told me that for years it was almost a routine practice in the public service when there was any leak in the media for there to be a check on that journalist's or the suspect public servant's phone records to find out who'd leaked the information. He also warned me you could drive a truck through the Telecommunications Act laws that allow phone companies to provide this data. The key test to justify accessing a journalist's metadata was and still is, the mere assertion that this information is reasonably necessary for the enforcement of the criminal law. Now, that might sound like it would have to be a pretty serious crime, maybe a, a leak of a document marked secret or confidential to justify asking for someone's phone records. But you need to know that the laws that criminalise leaking by public servants, that's section 70 of the Crimes Act, they're a pathetic, flabby, catch-all joke. It forbids Commonwealth officers, 
public servants from disclosing certain information, but that information doesn't have to be secret or confidential. It simply has to be any fact or document in their knowledge or possession by virtue of being a Commonwealth officer. Think about that. It doesn't get much broader than that. That covers pretty much anything on their desk, including, I suspect, the office Christmas party invitation. But my source had left the best part to last. And this is what truly woke me up to this threat. In order to educate me about metadata surveillance, he'd brought along my metadata, my own phone records, because he was aware I was talking to other public servants and he wanted to warn me to stop. It, he showed me a phone record that had been obtained under one of these warrants, which basically detailed all the calls out and all the calls in on my phone. Sources I'd spoken to in several stories over the previous months were clearly identified by their subscriber name, number and address on that list. There in front of me was evidence that could quite reasonably, I think, send several public servants to jail or at least lose them their jobs. But what shocked me most of all was the cultural attitude that this request for this paperwork revealed. For this senior public servant, mercifully a friendly source, he knew that the accounting, accountability controls on the ballooning number of metadata requests were such a joke. They were so pathetic that he'd obtained my phone records knowing there'd be absolutely no blowback for him. And there wasn't, even after I broadcast a story using the data that he'd leaked to me. I suspect the metadata laws are part of an opportunistic push by our police and our intelligence services to use the current national security crisis to try and shut down the door on journalistic investigations into their activities. After this week's executions in Indonesia, if ever there was a time for investigating the activities of the federal police, this is it. It's vitally important that journalists do investigate the work that our spies and our police do. It's in the public interest. Now look, at the moment, our overseas spy service is doing all it can to try and suppress media reporting on an operation it ran in East Timor in 2004. The whistleblower, a highly decorated manager for the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, was the director of technical operations for ACES. This is not some junior flunky. He's a senior officer. He was reportedly ordered to bug the Timorese ministerial officers. Now, he felt that the bugging was immoral and wrong, that it didn't serve Australia's national interest. Instead, it served the commercial interests of large corporations who were trying to secure their slice of Timor's oil revenues. For the moment, just remember that Timor is one of the poorest countries in the world. And we've done pretty well out of the Timor oil deal, as Marianne Wilkinson has explained on Four Corners previously. But for the moment, that ASIS whistleblower has been muzzled with threats of prosecution. And now there's a new section in the ASIO Act called 35P, which outlaws any disclosure of information relating to a so-called special intelligence operation. And all they need to do to prove the offence is to show that the person disclosing the information that's the journalist or the whistleblower, is reckless as to its secrecy, which means essentially you have to have government permission now to reveal anything. This is a huge change 
in how we can report on national security laws. And it's been done literally by stealth under our noses. It's huge. It's very, very important. There are ramifications about this everywhere else in the um, government as well. In, in February, a good mate of mine and a colleague, Linton Besser at Four Corners, he used leak government documents to prove massive frauds inside a privatised job agency that's doing the work of what used to be the Commonwealth Employment Service. Now, to prove the fraud, Linton had to show job seekers leaked paperwork, which showed them what the job agency claimed it had done to help that person find work. Job seeker after job seeker alleged that their paperwork was forged. This is millions of dollars in fraud we're talking about here. One whistleblower estimated as much as 80 per cent of these claims were fraud. You should all be worried about this because you're taxpayers. You're paying for this. By any measure, this was an important story that taxpayers have a right to know about. So what has been the government's reaction? Well, I can tell you that just this week, Linton and Four Corners have learned the AFP is now investigating the leak of that information, using a little-known section of the Social Security Administration Act that makes it an offence for a person to knowingly use protected information. The only reason they're doing this is to intimidate the whistleblowers. Why is that in the public interest? Four Corners and Linton and their whistleblower have probably saved taxpayers millions of dollars. What the government doesn't seem to realise is that sooner or later, truth will out anyway. It's easier now to steal entire databases. I'm not saying I applaud that, but it's so easy now for people to leak those rather than to go public as a whistleblower. And what I fear and what I suspect is that government bullying with laws like this may actually prompt sources to lay low, but instead to recklessly leak data, as has happened with Chelsea Manning's drop of the entire diplomatic cables database to WikiLeaks, or Edward Snowden's equally massive digital download of secrets from the National Security Agency. This is just the beginning. Even the most highly secure data can be breached by folly, which is why every Australian should be asking, why in heaven's name are we trusting our government with massively increased powers to store our metadata? When I came to Australia 30 years ago, there was a huge public outcry against the proposed Australia card, which really essentially was just a national photo ID card. Those concerns now seem so tame compared to the threat posed by metadata surveillance and other spy laws today. And that's especially a worry if you're a journalist. I talk to criminals on the phone all the time. I was recently sent the Facebook page link for an Australian who'd joined up to fight with Islamic State extremists in Syria. If I make a practice of looking at these sites or talking to criminals for legitimate, legitimate journalistic purposes, Am I risking becoming a suspect now on some government database? I wouldn't know about this because I'm not allowed to. That might seem paranoid, but is it? At least in America, they give journalists the opportunity to know about an application for their metadata and to argue against it. Australia's keeping the whole thing secret. The former general counsel for the National Security Agency is a guy called Stuart Baker, and he said, Metadata tells you everything about somebody's life. 
if you have enough metadata, you don't really need content. And the, the head of the CIA, himself a former boss of the NSA, Michael Hayden, was asked about Stuart Baker's comments, and he actually agreed. He said, absolutely correct. We kill people based on metadata. <laughs> Think about that. The US believes that America has the power to kill people based solely on an analysis of their metadata. Oh, well, at least the Americans never make mistakes. And neither do our federal police. Oh, except for when they raided our offices at Channel 7 in the search for completely non-existent payments to the Corby family. Or when they imprisoned Dr. Muhammad Hanif in the totally mistaken belief that he was a terrorist. It was actually metadata information on Dr. Hanif's phone SIM card that he'd left with a relative in Britain, which led the AFP and Scotland Yard to the completely mistaken conclusion that Dr. Hanif had aided the Glasgow airport terror attack in 2007. So how do we protect ourselves against government surveillance of our metadata? Well, it's almost impossible. The best way is to ensure that first contact with a sensitive government source is always off the grid. Don't use your phone, your email, your SMS, your messaging, or in fact any kind of digital communication to make contact. Educate potential whistleblowers through your website that they can be tracked through their metadata. Suggest they write you a letter instead. Don't carry your phone with you when you go and see them. This is what happened to Jeffrey Risen, uh, James Risen at the New York Times, because it's breathtakingly easy to geolocate a phone and show that a journalist and a source were in the same place at the same time. One of the biggest problems that we've still got, though, is the first contact from a potential source, because so many of them ring us journalists out of the blue. If someone like that, though, now contacts me by phone or email, I warn them that they're now compromised because they've left a digital trace. I had a, a bloke ring me some time back who worked in the immigration detention centres. He'd told me a, a harrowing story, which he had documents to prove, and he wanted to leak to me about young boys being raped by men in immigration detention centres. I felt ethically obliged to warn him that no matter what I did to protect him, the record of his call would now be stored on a database and lead government investigators back to him when there was almost an inevitable inquiry into the leak. He chose not to go public. I can't blame him. And that is why metadata is killing investigative journalism. One secure messaging app I use, and I recommend it, and I hear Malcolm Turnbull uses it as well, is, is Wicker, W-I-C-K-R. It's a free encrypted messaging app that you and a source can install on your phones or computer. The guarantee is it has no metadata. It stores no data on its users at all. It has a built-in file shredder that erases all the communications after a set time. There's a few of these encrypted apps out there, but be warned, all the standard messaging systems, Facebook, Skype, IM, Snapchat, Twitter, email, all their metadata is now being kept and will lead investigators to a journalist's source if that journalist uses them. I also use online emails as dead letter drops for sources, but to hide the metadata trail from my computer to that online email site, I also use a free, easily downloadable program called Tor, T-O-R, the Tor Browser Bundle. It's a program that gives you the, a way of surfing the net without leaving metadata. 
Edward Snowden used Tor to send the NSA's secrets to the Washington Post and the Guardian newspaper. The bottom line is no solution will ever be secure unless it's a face-to-face -face meeting with no digital traces for the spooks to follow. Be paranoid. Now, I want to leave you tonight with something that's going to make you even more paranoid. Someone here in Sydney is hacking into your mobile phone on a routine basis. This is a crypto phone. It's uh, made by an Australian company that operates in Las Vegas. It uses high-end encryption to protect cell phone calls from spying. And a lot of media companies and businesses are now using these in trouble spots overseas where they don't trust local phone companies not to spy on them. But someone is snooping on our supposedly encrypted phone calls here in Australia. What this crypto phone also does is alert me when there's a rogue cell tower or MC catcher in the area. These rogue cell towers are spying devices used, we hope, legally, under warrant, by police and intelligence services. They're also used illegally by crooks and corporate spies. And there have been huge revelations in uh, America and particularly in Norway about illegal use of these devices, including by some government departments. What these rogue cell towers do is catch any cell phone in the vicinity and force that phone to run its data unencrypted through the rogue cell tower. Now, there's a lot I'd love to tell you about what I've discovered in Sydney about the location and frequency of these rogue cell towers. On one night a week ago, I was warned numerous times by alerts on this phone that a rogue tower was trying to hack into my phone at different locations right here in Sydney. The places I found these rogue cell towers shocked me, and they'll shock you. But the only reason I know about them is because I'm using this borrowed device as a test to see what's out there. A normal mobile phone user wouldn't even think there was anything wrong. They wouldn't notice. The obvious question is, who's spying on us with these rogue cell towers? What legal basis do they have for doing it? And how widespread is it? Now, I'd love to tell you more, of course, but, oh crikey, Section 35P of the ASIO Act says that I'm committing an offence if I recklessly disclose information on a special intelligence operation. Now, there's a catch-22 to this because I have no way of finding out if this cell phone spying is part of a government-authorised special intelligence operation. There's just no way to know. So, for the moment, that's one story I'm not going to tell. But watch this space. Watch that space indeed. That's Ross Coulthart, investigative journalist known for his work with Seven Sunday Night Program. You can now catch him back with the Nine Network 60 Minutes. That address was delivered at the 2015 Press Freedom Australia Dinner last month, presented by the MEAA, the International Federation of Journalists, and the Walkley Foundation. Every year that dinner raises funds for the Media Safety and Solidarity Fund, which is set up to assist journalists in the Asia-Pacific region through times of emergency, war and hardship. Next week here on Fourth Estate, we're going to be speaking to some of Australia's best photojournalists, talking about their work and how they're standing up to the big photo agencies like Getty Images. And by the way, the World Press Photo Exhibition is still showing at the State Library of New South Wales. They're showing the year's best photojournalism from all around the world. It's always worth a visit and it is in its final week this week, so definitely check that out if you haven't already. That's it from us on Fourth Estate this week. My name's Jack Fisher. Thank you for your company. 
We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SCR's Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SCR 107.3 and at 2SCR.com. Check out the program description for links to follow 2SCR and Fourth Estate. You can subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook to be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events.